Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listen in, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with double BAFTA winning TV writer and producer Mark Cately. I'm on a mission to help you unlock your creativity. I'm sharing my journey as a musician, actor and writer, as well as offering online content like guitar and songwriting tutorials and chat about creativity. I'm doing this because I know how important creativity is for mental health and I believe everyone has a creative spirit. I want to help you find yours. Join me at robertlaymusic.co.uk and on social media as Robert Lane Music. Thank you. Hi, Mark. How are you? Yeah, very good. Thank you. How is yourself? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you. Just, um, I feel like everyone's a bit frazzled. We're talking just at the start of December, um, yeah. this sort of run up to Christmas and this most extraordinary of years. It's one where I, I don't know about you, I'm not that sad to see the back of this year in, in many ways. Um, and it just sort of feels like a lot of us are kind of nearing the end of our tether with stuff. How about you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's been what nine months of this now, and I think that seems to be the human limit because most of the people I know. They're at the end of the tether, or thereabouts. We had, um, I was at a Christmas fair on Saturday, which was obviously, you know, had to be well marshaled. Everybody wore the masks, all the stalls were outdoors, they all had separate bits, and it was just a little bit depressing as well as joyous. <laughs> it was like, how much longer are we going to have to live um, in this alternate universe that we seem to have created for ourselves? But yeah, yeah, I'm 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 done. Even as a writer who should be used to sitting in and doing nothing and not really talking to anybody else. That's kind of what I do for a living. Um but even as a writer, I'm sick to death of it. I can't wait to get in a room with other writers again and talk. I've I've written a a six part series with three other writers and it's all been done under lockdown. Okay. And it's dreadful. I mean, hopefully the series won't be dreadful, but it's probably taken us twice as long to get there as it would do normally. And is that people that you've worked with before, or is this a new project with new collaborators? Um, it's it's new it's new bosses, um, new new uh, company that we're working for, um, but it's writers that I know, and you know we do we do have a shorthand uh, conversation, but doing everything through Zoom, we do everything by negotiation. It's just twice as long for some reason than being in a room. So we've done two projects before where we would have a writer's room. And we started out in three days. Mm. And and now we're just having to talk everything through. And I I think um I think it's been a real damage to my creativity. I know that much. And I think a lot of other writers that I've spoken to, it's a very uh dangerous time to try and be creative because you've got that kind of background anxiety going on all the time you know that kind of uh, limited contact with other people which all feeds into into being creative you know they'll give you know people give you language um and phrases you know i'm always hearing stuff off people but now unless they said it on peaky blinders I won't. I wouldn't know because all, all I'm doing is watching box sets with me and my wife sat on the sofa. 
<laughs> well, there's a couple of things so, yeah. with that that are, that are interesting to to sort of pick up then. Yeah. Ideally, in a normal sort of world, <laughs> what would a, a fantastic, mm. normal, productive writing day look like? Would it involve a bit of popping down to a coffee shop and doing a bit of people watching or, or going for a walk or whatever? And is that the sort of thing that you're missing at the moment? Uh, yeah, I miss that. I, I, I work quite inten- intensely on the morning, so my routine normally is drop the little one off at school, go straight into the office, and then work until about 1, 2 o'clock. Mm-hmm do any other bits of reading and that after that and then um i love my sport i love doing exercise but i'm not i'm not one for gyms or anything like that so you know i either go play golf or go for a long walk or i've been doing a bit of boxing over the last three years so you know stuff to look forward to once the writing's out of the way and once the oh, work's interesting. done and that's what i'm missing that i'm missing that thing to look forward to but also as, as a because I'm a writer and uh, I have been a showrunner and a producer as well. So that's a little bit more hands-on. So I'm very used to like once every fortnight or once every month getting away for a few few days, getting in a writer's room with other people, um, you know, meetings, casting meetings. Even the boring meetings, I miss them. I think of them fondly. <laughs> and even the worst, hotel, the worst hotels in the world that the BBC would put me up in. I miss them now. Like they were five star Abu Dhabi. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's that thing you mentioned of nine months being the limit. It's like people are adaptable. So you go through the first bit where it's like, oh gosh, this is scary and a bit new. And then you get to the bit where, okay, we know what we need to do. We're all in it together. We'll plow on through. And then there's only so much plowing on through, isn't there? And then as you say, you just start to miss your old life, I guess, even the the less exotic or the less exciting bits. It's it's weird. I think yeah. a certain amount of human nature is we want what we haven't got in that moment, don't we? So when you're told totally, you yeah, can't do something, you're desperate to do it. Yeah. Because when they lifted the restrictions, it's not like I was in the pub every night or I was out eating. Sure. I wasn't. I didn't. Do, I barely did it, to be honest with you. But just the knowledge that we could if we wanted to was, was much better than the knowledge that you definitely can't. Um, and it is that it's a very weird head state that it's like um having the option is as good as doing the thing. Yeah. And having the option removed from you is ter- it's suddenly terrifying. And it's like, oh no, I don't like this. I don't want that, you know, I don't want this in my life. Um so yeah, but up in Leeds, I mean we're in tier three now, so it, the the lockdown never really changed. It was a slight shift. Um so it still feels like we're in lockdown to be perfectly mm. honest. Um, but you know, we're well, just getting on the after, don't you? I mean, you know, the other option is not very nice. <laughs> no, that's 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 true. And how has it affected things in terms of work? Were there some projects that should have been happening now that can't happen and have been put on hold? Yeah, when when it started, there was two two months where I, I didn't work at all. Um, which bizarrely were the best two months of the whole thing because I. I a theatre company that I do a lot of work with, uh, who are based in South Leeds, they became a food bank because oh, they thought, "How can we be? How can we make ourselves useful? Yeah. We've got a big spare." So yeah, we we got in touch with a few companies, got some food, and I was delivering uh, delivering boxes of food for two months, and I'm still doing it now, like once or twice a week. And that, I mean, that was you know a very fulfilling experience that I wouldn't have had without this lockdown. But then when we started working, like I said, we, we, I've worked on 
maybe three projects now during lockdown. Um, one of them was for myself, for a production company in this country, um, and a project that we're trying to sell to one of the terrestrial TV shows. And I had a read-through of it a few weeks ago. It was written in, in probably the second or third month. Mm-hmm. And this read-through, I was just wincing. I was just thinking, what happened? I don't write like this. It didn't sound like my voice at all, and it wasn't. It didn't feel like it was me that had written it. It felt very alien as a piece of work. So I do, you know, I do strongly believe that it's had an effect on me. And, but then writing in a team is a little bit better because at least people can put you back on track and, you know, say, you know, where's, where's your voice in that? Where's the humour? Where's, you know, where's the warmth and that sort of thing? But yeah, that's the thing I wrote on my own. I just read it back and I was like, oh my days. I hate that feeling. It's like when you read back the first things you've ever written and you spend the entire time cringing. (laughs) It was just that. That's interesting. How close are you to to things that you've written then and coming back to them months or years later? You said at at one point it felt like a different voice or it wasn't your voice. Yeah, as a as yeah. a writer, I mean, when you're putting things out, is it possible to sort of remove yourself, or do you still feel quite close to those things as you put them out into the world, and and they have their own um, their own lives and possible rejections and all the rest of it? Is that something yeah. you take personally or or not? Well, no, you do, but you you learn as you, as you go on as well. I mean, I've been writing for a fairly long time now, I suppose. I think for television since two thousand and six, and. You know, I put everything into every script that I had and they went all good. <laughs> and, and the audience will let you know very quickly as well when it comes to TV. Um, we wrote a special once for Casualty that I, th- I mean, I put a load of work into it. It was like a film noir version of Casualty. Okay. It was like a, a standalone episode. So we tried something different and the audience detested it. I mean, maybe not the entire audience, but those on Twitter especially. <laughs> I got my own page on Digital Spy um, of people saying, is this the worst ever episode of Casualty? I got told to go shoot myself by someone on Twitter. Um, and that, I mean, that was a big night for me. <laughs> but now when I was watching Twitter when the episode was on, because I was genuinely thinking, oh, they're going to love this. It's something new, something different. And they hated it. Um, and you get just get a little bit tougher. You grow a slightly tougher skin. Um, I worked for EastEnders for two years, and you need a very tough skin if you're working on that show because the audience don't hesitate to tell you what they think about it. Um, so you, you, I'm, I'm not saying you invest less, but you learn how to um, manage your own expectations. I think, but there's episodes that I've done that are out that are out there that will get repeated every now and then that I'm very proud of. And I know, you know, I know they were good pieces of work and they were they were me at my best. And you know, like a footballer, I'm not gonna have a good game every every match. It's not gonna work like that. I am not gonna put a hat trick away every game. Um but you know, I'll try and work hard for the team. I'll stop the football analogy now because I could right. carry on for the next half. That's, that's all right. And all these analogies <laughs> with that then, the 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 reaction of something like EastEnders, Holby City. Is there an mm. element of just how much people love those programs and they're in their homes three or whatever it is times a week? They feel a certain ownership of them. 
So if they yeah. if they're not going the way they think they should go, then they can get a bit. It's kind oh, yeah, of personal, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've seen some horrific things being written. Um, I mean, speaking from another writer's perspective, I know she wrote on quite a big drama, and there was um, a gay couple, two girls, and she killed one of the characters, and she got death threats for years afterwards. Years not, after not even that. like yeah, years, literally years. She was telling me about it, and um, yeah, it happens. It does. People get very passionate about it, but it's also the kind of one of the many failings of social media is is that kind of immediacy and that lack of filter. Mm-hmm. Like people don't really think about it when they say stuff. It's like they, they don't believe that other people are human. Maybe I'm not. I'm not entirely sure what goes through their head sometimes. I, I, I watch stuff and I think I want to get on Twitter and tell everybody how bad <laughs> I think this is. But I know how it feels, so I'm not going to do that. Absolutely. And that's the thing, isn't it? You're only going to really hear on social media from the ones who are passionate enough <laughs> to make a thing about yeah. it. And that could only really be a small percentage. But I guess with something like EastEnders, it is. it's a small percentage of a fairly big number of people who've seen it. Yeah, it is. But yeah, you, you, when we, I, I realised uh, I worked for Casualty for quite a long time. And I, and I, I, used, I used to listen to them on Twitter quite a lot. And, and I befriended some people and kind of calmed them down a little bit when they were when they were getting angry with us. Um, and then I realised it's probably about 12 people. But they make such a noise because they retweet one another, they you know, they, they jump on together at the same time and stuff like that. And you're, actually, you're talking like a dozen people. And then when that once that realisation had hit, it's like, well, that's not the audience. We need to go ask our audience what they want mm-hmm. because we can't pander to half a dozen people on on Twitter, mm-hmm. who are shouting that they want this couple to get together. <laughs> we can't. We shouldn't be um, tailoring our storylines for them. Yes. And is it the case that um, it's much easier to listen to negative voices or harsh reviews than it is to the the positive ones? So, like in my experience as an action and musician, <laughs> you can have a load of people saying how nice or how good something is, but it's the one or yeah. two who have the less good things to say that will bother you. And that again, uh, it's a human nature thing, and it's really unfair yeah. on ourselves that we do this, isn't it? Yeah, I'm I'm fairly good at it because I quite like the I quite like the nasty ones in a way. <laughs> um, I don't know why masochism or something. But a friend of mine, uh, a writer called Tom Bidwell, a very good friend, he wrote my Mad Fat Diary, which was a big hit for E4 a good few years ago now. And me and him were at um, Centre Parks having a little writer's break, <laughs> a little, little doss around, really, a um, little holiday through the expense account. And um, the first episode of my Mad Fat Diary was being aired that night. And he sat up all night on Twitter reading everything. And it was all positive. It was amazing feedback. It was absolutely brilliant. Apart from about one o'clock in the morning, he got one negative tweet, which sent him into this spiral of depression. And I think um, as creative people, we just if you can if you can drag yourself away from them forums, then do so. You know, fair enough, speak to your audience. But uh, that that isn't Twitter. That your audience is more likely to be, you know, the people that you speak to that you know that will at least temper their arguments. If they have any arguments against what you've written, they'll at least be gentle about it. Constructive criticism 
as opposed to go flush yourself down the toilet. Or, I think the one that the one that I got sent to me was there was a gun in the episode, and it was I wish the writer would get that gun and shoot himself in the head, which I retweeted, <laughs> so everybody piled on him. But yeah, it, it, it's not it's not a good profession for the ego. It's certainly not an egotist's profession because you know even the best writers and most famous writers they get abused left, right, and centre. Mm-hmm. Um, and so yeah, I mean sometimes it's just not constructive at all. And what about for want of a better term then the kind of professional reviews I, I mean maybe this is something that's got more in your theater writing perhaps as well i don't know where uh, yeah. a reviewer as opposed to some member of the public or not yeah. <laughs> on twitter has something to say those reviews yeah. that i guess are supposed to be um constructive but can still sometimes just be nasty or whatever how is your relationship with that kind of thing and has it changed oh, over the years it has. I mean, it's been a while since I've written for theatre, but the last two pieces that I, that I wrote got very favourable reviews in the in the bigger newspapers. But interestingly, one of them got really good reviews in the sort of left wing press, and the other one got really good reviews in the right wing press. And I didn't, I okay. didn't, I couldn't work out what the difference was at all. <laughs> I was like, hmm, I don't really know what I've done there. But I do remember as um, as a young writer, I, I bumped into the critic from. Our, our local newspaper, and he was raving about the play. He was saying that is just one of the best things I've ever seen here. Thank you so much. And I was like, oh wow. And then he put out this really horrible three star review, and, I, and I, it just mortified me. And I remember next time I saw him, I says, what What was that about? He says, oh, I thought about it when I got back home, and I realised it was a bit reductive, and it wasn't. It was a bit too black and white, and not quite. And I, and I thought, no, <laughs> I've you've lied to my face, yeah, yeah, and you know, tried to make me feel good, so you don't have to confront me there and then, or you, you've you've deliberately written a bad review to get yourself a bit of press. I don't really know. I ain't got a clue. I think from that point onwards, I I, I started to worry less about it, about that sort of thing. Um, I think what always matters to me is when the people that you're working with. Because there's very rarely will you get a script right the first time. Um, mm. But, you know, they will see something in it that they like and they'll be like, oh, yeah, let's keep going down this track. And it's when you 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 break them, it's when they say to you, I cried at this one, that this, this draft is the one that made me cry or this draft is the one that made me cheer. You know, that's the moments when you feel that you've done your job correctly. And hopefully the audience have the same reaction as that person. But it's all subjective as well. You know, not everybody's going to cry at the same things or cheer at the same thing. Absolutely. And from a lot of the people that I've spoken to for this as well, it, mm. it tends to be in all kind of creative fields that the thing you think, oh, this is it, this is great, I've I've cracked it here, yeah. or as a group we are doing brilliant work here, yeah. isn't necessarily the one that catches an audience. And it could be the thing that you just do that has some – some life to it has that been your experience as well yeah i mean you're, you're actually describing my experience on eastenders there because it was maybe three or four years ago i was brought in with another writer and an executive producer and um probably can't say too much but the, the show was not in a good place so we came up with this really elaborate storyline which we all thought was going to resurrect it and save it 
and it bombed. You know, there was no denying it. There was some bits, some some episodes worked, but on a whole, it bombed, and the audience did not like it. And then uh, halfway through, because obviously you're writing it way before it's going out on yep. air, and then somebody just ran into the office one day and went, "We've forgotten Soap Week," and I'm like, "What's Soap Week?" And apparently. There's a big week for all the soaps where they all kind of battle against each other. Um, and I think it's for the purpose of the award ceremonies that are upcoming and all that. That's when they're voting. That's it. The voting lines are open in that week. Okay. So they all, all tend to turn up with these big stories. And we had nothing. We had like <laughs> zero going on that week. Um, so we came up with something on the spot. It was, um, it was relevant because... Um, it was about a young lad uh, in London, in Walford, who got stabbed. And it just became the, one of the biggest stories that we'd done with the show, one of the best received things that we'd done. And it was literally thought of in an afternoon, whereas we'd spent months crafting this <laughs> this other storyline that bombed. Um, but it, it was, as soon as we said it, we kind of knew it. That was the sort of story we should have been telling from the start. And, yeah, everything clicked into place and the audience loved it. And so it's just weird. It's just weird how it, you know, sometimes you catch it right and sometimes you just don't. Yeah, and necessity being the mother invention as well, like you needed an idea. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the idea was just there. Yeah, I think that, that I mean, on Casualty as well, I mean, I was very lucky on Casualty. They, they showed great trust in me from from being a very early writer. And I ended up having, over the years, over the 10 years I've been there, I think six years I got nominated for a BAFTA for an episode. And one of them occasions was, um, the, the first occasion was um, we decided to kill off a character. Mm. But then we'd realised, like through necessity, that the actress was so good, we couldn't, uh, we couldn't get rid of her. But we'd already filmed the ending, <laughs> so we came up with this idea of a diary, which went back six took us about six months, and told the story basically of a young doctor, of a junior doctor, and the real life strains and stresses that these people are under, uh, and how it can lead them to down a dark path. You know, as all them poor sods out there now will probably a centre um, and and, it, and so we, we kind of brought her back at the end you know she was she wasn't dead like we thought she was she was alive and um it was just the best thing I've ever written still to this day and it, it was written quickly it was written you know under great pressure and there wasn't a lot of time and we had to persuade the actress to stay and yeah yeah weird and yet now I'm spending six months writing a series and I'm not sure it's going to be as good as that single episode that I wrote in a few weeks. It's just how it goes. I'm sorry to interrupt the conversation at this point, but I wondered if I could ask if you might possibly consider subscribing to the podcast, rating it and writing a review on your favourite podcast provider. Doing these wonderful things encourages the all-powerful algorithms to push the podcast to new people. It's also helpful when I'm talking to potential future guests as it shows that people are listening. Thank you. I wonder if you could give us a bit of a kind of history that uh, gets you to mm. where you are at the moment then and, and sort of the the hustle, would that be the right word, that got you into the position where you were writing on some of these shows? Uh, 
hustle is, I mean, it's more like a pinball machine with me. I kind of went where the wind blew me because I, le- I left school at 16 with nothing, no no real um, decent results or anything like that from school. I worked on the skips. I worked as a fishmonger. I worked in picking <laughs> picking diodes and putting them into a little plastic packet for three oh. years. I did that. That was a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, and then joined a youth theatre. Um, kind of really by accident, just just followed a friend, and um, through that went to college. Thought I wanted to be an actor, and then finished college, came back to Leeds, joined up with another couple of actors, and we didn't have any material that we liked. There was nothing that we felt spoke about us that we mm-hmm. wanted to put on. So we came started coming up with our own material, and that's how I started writing. And it was by hand on pieces on pieces of paper. And I'm not that old, you know, there the were computers available. <laughs> it was um, <laughs> but it was like, you know, just handwritten kind of scripts about episodes in our life. We'd all grown up on the same um council estate in Leeds, mm. in South Leeds. And so a lot of it was kind of um with an ethos actually, which which I was thinking about earlier, and it, and it was weird that we had one, because we never spoke about it and it was accidental. But we wanted to show that life on life being being brought up working class and being brought up in a council estate was actually full of love and hope and uh, and joy. We all had really fond memories of it. And crazy things happen and, and you know, there's crazy characters and, and they were the fun bits of it really. Um and obviously tragic things happen to people, but ultimately we wanted to show that it was a a positive experience. And not all of our mm. stories were about trying to escape. Which it seemed to me about being a young lad, like everything I'd watched about working class life was about trying to get out. You know, I'm off down to London to make my fortune, mother and all that sort of stuff. And it was that wasn't my experience of it. So um so yeah, I started writing that kind of stuff. Mm. And, and the audience really really dug it. And then Leeds Playhouse as they are now, um, they picked me up. And then the BBC were looking for regional voices. Um I think each year. I mean, this isn't just the BBC, this is with everybody. It's like a different minority group is, is targeted and going, right, come on, let's lift you up. And I was so lucky that it, it was my year that year, you know, it, they were looking for people with strong regional voices mm-hmm. to write, write on their shows. So I got taken to the Writers' Academy at the BBC. I did the first ever year of the Writers' Academy in 2006 and then never looked back from that point onwards. So the Writers' Academy was like three or four months of just structure and working out what writing, what story is. And we watched films every day. It was fantastic. It was great. And that kind of, uh, you know, I started in theatre, I did a bit of radio, but then when I got to TV, it was like, oh, no, I understand TV. (laughs) You know, I didn't really understand theatre. I didn't really understand radio because I'd not experienced them growing up. But TV, I knew all about telly. So I felt really comfortable when I was there. And it kind of all accelerated for, for me from there. Um, but all through that time, you need somebody who's championing you. And I've been very lucky that at different periods of my career, I've had people behind me or promoting me or, you know, just, just saying, come on, I've got to something else. It's the next thing that you can do. And, um, and so, yeah, that's kind of why I say I've pinballed. Because yep. I've just gone where people have said you should be doing this, 
all right, yeah, I'll try it. I'll try out. And I, had, I really had that kind of uh, mentality that I'd been brought up with. Going, yeah, I'll give it a go. I don't mind. <laughs> no real ambition. Like a lot of the writers that I met, lovely, lovely, lovely people, you know, but a lot of them have been to Oxbridge, a lot of them being very well educated. They kind of had the confidence about them that I, I just found quite amazing. Mm-hmm. But my, my confidence was more like cheek, you know, it was more like um, daring than, than theirs was one of, you know, we expect this to happen next and we expect to get a show on. And mine was, well, I'm going to have, I'm going to give it a go because why yeah. not? <laughs> was it, uh, and they had maybe, from what you're saying, perhaps they, they had more of a plan. I'll do this, which will lead to this, which will lead to this, which will get me yeah. there. Whereas that, perhaps your experience was more, oh, yeah, I'll say yes to this. And if that leads to something else, that's great. And yeah. then just follow the path that way. It became my philosophy just to say yes to everything. And there were times where that was a really bad thing to do. And I, I overworked <laughs> myself and I, I, bent, I bent out a couple of times and it just wasn't the right thing to do. But, you know, it just felt like that was a plan. It was working for me at the time, um, you know. And uh, you know, I did re- done really well out of it. Hopefully, still will. Um, I'm getting to that age though, where writers are kind of uh, at fifty. It's a bit, it gets a bit dodgy now. It's like, oh, do we really have our finger on the pulse anymore? The look at you walking in and go, <laughs> I'm "Not sure you can write about you, the youth anymore." <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, that's you know. interesting. Then, do you, does that mean that you're potentially, or that you you are changing the voice that you want to? want to write for or the the, uh, the situations that you want to write no i think it's it's the only um perception of writers that people have sometimes is is how old the writer is it's one of the only one of the only defining things about about a writer is are they old or young <laughs> and i think when you're an older writer you tend to get pigeonholed i mean touch wood as yet it's not worked like that for me but i've seen it so often through through the years I've been involved, where I've seen brilliant writers just suddenly get left on the shelf. And I'm thinking, well, why aren't we using them? Because they're great. They're brilliant. And the, the the perception is that they don't have a contemporary voice, which is, of course, absolute bullshit because they're as contemporary as anybody else who's alive at this moment in time. And also as a writer, we're very good at, at um, interpreting other people's experiences and, and you know putting them on paper I mean really for me it was only it was 10 years ago I was asked to lead write a show about grime artists in Peckham and I think well if I could do that at 40 then I think I can do most things at 50 it's not going to make you know and 10 years haven't made a massive difference <laughs> I've, I've not lost my mind in the meantime mm. Could you tell us a bit about some of those um, champions that you mentioned then? You know, don't know yeah. name names necessarily, but what were their positions and what was it that they were, were giving you and encouraging you to do? Well, the, the one that um, kind of springs to mind that's really interesting, and it was only a small, I only met him three times, um, but Max Stafford-Clark, who was um, he was famous for, for discovering Andrea Dunbar, who wrote Rita Sue and Bob Two, um, and he was doing like a, a sequel to that with his theatre company out of joint, and they um, they came to Leeds and Bradford, and they were researching this sequel, and he said to me, "This is five people have told me your name. B 
because I'm the only person that anybody knew in the area who did writing, who was a writer, called themselves a writer or whatever. It's just, so I've just got in touch. And so I ended up you know, writing on this uh, piece for him and um, he created one of the characters kind of from my life experience and what have you. And so it was a very tiny, tiny thing. But what he did at the end of it was he wrote a letter to West Yorkshire Playhouse as it was then, mm. and to the incoming artistic director, Ian Brown, who became my next sort of mentor. And he said, it's a shame that this lad is on your doorstep and no one's done anything about it. And it was as simple as that. That one kindness from someone who at that time was you know, a very powerful man in theatre, that one kindness from him. And I've never spoken to him since. Like It's not like we kept in touch. And we're best friends. It was just one one moment of kindness that opened the door. And then myself and Ian Brown got on really well. And like I say, he commissioned me three times. And then I moved into the TV world after that as well. And yeah, it is sometimes you just gotta get lucky. You gotta be in the right mm. place at the right time. And you've got to have what they're looking for as well. You know, I'm not I'm not just saying I've just been lucky, but um I could quite easily have gone unnoticed as well. I'm aware of that. I'm, I'm aware I'm in a privileged position um, to, to still be working after so long um, and on projects that I'm loving as well. So, although not loving so much during lockdown, I'm sure I'll love it more when we're, when we're out of all this. <laughs> and it's interesting to me that the a lot of that came from from your own stuff. So you said mm. you were writing kind of, from what you said, I think you were writing kind of from necessity because there wasn't stuff that you wanted to be performing. Yeah. So you were making your own stuff. Yeah. yeah. And then it's the making your own stuff that catches someone's attention that leads somewhere else. And I think yeah. that's a really interesting thing for creatives to be thinking about, particularly at the moment, yeah. of, you know, when it's possible to make stuff and get it out there, whether anyone sees it or watches it is something different, but, but actually it kind of doesn't matter. You're making it. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, di- diversifying was something I realized straight away. I even did a little bit of directing in the early days as well and thoroughly enjoyed that and that might even be something that I could go into now and I've got that bit of experience from back in the day as well which is you know which is really useful but yeah I mean totally diversifying now I know I know people have done really well out of this situation because they put this stuff online and it's blown up for them Mm -hmm. you know it's really taken off you know and and more power to them you know anybody that can adapt to this scenario that we find ourselves in uh, is great. But also anybody, just anybody who's in a creative career, just explore everything. But I think that I think that the attitude of saying yes to everything really helps in that way, because that did push me into it. Because mm-hmm. my first write, paid writing gig was from a director at Channel 4 who I thought, thought was going to offer me a, uh, an acting job. And, and we'd been talking for hours, and she went, and I asked, well, which part am I playing? And she went, no, no, you're writing it. You're not playing anybody. You're writing it. Because she'd seen me perform. So I presume she wanted me as a performer, but it turned out she realised that I'd written the script and she wanted me to write the piece. And that was kind of a first little foray into television. And, you know, just saying yes and giving it a go. And in that uh, saying yes to stuff, has there been anything that's got you into a situation where actually I can't do this <laughs> or I shouldn't have said yes to this or, or you know, have you had those situations <laughs> as well? And, and were they positive things to still do? 
Um, no, I mean, some, sometimes, I mean, I, I think I was so happy when I was a casualty. They asked me to do the East Enders job for three three months initially. And the casualty job would still be there for me at the end of it. And that felt fine. But the way the, the East Enders job went, I ended up being there for a year and a half. And they had to cover my job with somebody else at casualty. And I just found myself at the end of the East Enders work, just without a home. And so, yes, yes, that, that was probably one situation I should have followed my gut and stayed with where I was comfortable. But, I, you know, I've never done that before. I've never stayed with where I'm comfortable. So, you know, I've always moved on and, done, you know, tested myself. So um, I can take some positives from it. But retrospectively, I probably should have stayed at casualty, to be honest with you. But never mind. Live and learn. <laughs> Um, I guess you, you may not be able to say too much, but the projects that you're working on at the moment mm. um, and into 2021, yeah. what's the, could you give us a rough idea what they're likely to be or well, what are likely to see there? They're, they're really, really different to anything I've done before. So um, I can't say, I genuinely can't say too much. And you'll, sure. you'll, hear what, you'll hear why in a minute, because I'm working for a company in Abu Dhabi who are, um, they've already got a massive tv output there but they don't have a culture of of writers tv writers so they're really interested in getting uh, english and french and whatever writers doing stuff and then translating it into arabic and then doing it over there they've now realized the the sort of global scale of television with netflix and amazon and disney and all that sort of stuff and they are just pumping pumping money into developing work and and getting shows made and stuff like that. And throughout all this year, they've been commissioning scripts off us. But the the, the subject material is just nothing I've, I've been asked to tackle before. It's, it's brilliant. So the, the first one uh, was a historical drama set around the end of the First World War when Medina was being held by the Ottomans. I didn't even know any of this. I had to read a book to get me up on that. And uh, and suddenly I'm writing, you know, I'm writing about battalions of a thousand Arabs coming over the hills to take on the Ottomans. And it's like, this is dreamland stuff for me to write that. I'm, I love my action films, my war movies. The next one was about a, a kidnapping, a, a real life kidnapping that happened. And I got to hear an interview with the, uh, the person who'd been kidnapped and write his story, and it's like, wow, that's brilliant. And now we're writing something um, that's about um, it's about corruption in football, which is pretty much all I can say on on it because um, because some of the court cases are ongoing, but that's global. I mean, the director at the moment is wrecking all over the world for this thing. It's it's amazing just to be able to write you know, at the top of your script to be able to write Barcelona, New Camp Stadium. This is a thing <laughs> heading. It's like when it used to be, you know, Albert Square, Walford. <laughs> um, or emergency room, casualty. So, yeah, yeah, it, it, we've, just, we've, we've hit a real lucky vein of work. A long way it continue into 21 and 22 because um, they're asking us to write some really interesting stuff. That's fantastic, isn't yeah. it? And how cool to be doing to you know, in any career, I think to be able to do new stuff. Yeah, yeah, to really test, 
it's really testing as well. You know, from suddenly where you're always aware of budget, you're always aware of keeping it, you know, small and tight and concealed to just someone saying, make it look as good as you can. Make it sound as impressive as possible. It's just, it's actually quite a leap of imagination for me. It's like, wow, that's as far away from growing up in Beeston as I can possibly get. <laughs> um, but no, it's been, it's, it's been amazing. It is an amazing job, and like I say, I hope it continues. Uh, and when you say we, sorry, yeah. the, 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 what's that? Is that a sort of so we've, we've, a production company? Or? We're not officially a production company. We're, we're, we're three writers who work together, um, and and we've had connections with with the company out there for quite a while. Okay. So, um, so we're just building on them connections, really, and building trust between the two. The, the two of us so yeah yeah it's three writers and I, you know i love working with writers my ideal um future would be running writers rooms that's something i love developing work and you know breaking down episodes and series and stuff like that you know that's just that's where i really enjoy myself and that's where writing feels like a communal effort because mm. it, it, it is it, it's not quite as isolating as it as people would think being a TV writer it is quite a it's quite a social thing to do um, especially when you're working on shows like EastEnders and Casualty you know you do find yourself in a room with a lot of other writers quite often and that's really liberating because you just find out how miserable you all are and <laughs> kind of get on with it um, I think it's a whinge of writers is the collective now <laughs> yeah, I think that's the correct thing but yeah I love working with the writers and uh and getting the buzz off that. And that's what I've missed this year without a shadow of it. Yep. Been trickier this year. Yeah. Great. Mark, that's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to no, me. No problem, um, If people wanted to catch up with you, we were we were talking about Twitter earlier. Yeah. So if people wanted to sort of um, say hello <laughs> on Twitter or, you know, be nice, yeah. <laughs> none of the nastiness, um, just remind me what your Twitter handle is, if you know. It's um, Duke of Beeston. Duke of Beeston. Which is which is an ironic name nickname I was given because I was I opened the Beeston Fair with the Lord Mayor of Leeds once back in the days when I was a theatre writer and someone dared to call me the Duke of Beeston, so it's stuck. <laughs> and it's stuck. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mark. No worries. Cheers. Thank you, Robert. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Join us next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast. Until then, please subscribe, rate and review, and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects I'm working on. Thank you. Goodbye.